You're listening to the Next Exec podcast series with Executive Women's Forum. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Next Exec podcast presented by the Executive Women's Forum. On Next Exec, we discuss a variety of topics related to cybersecurity and women in technology. Today, for our very first episode, we are going to be discussing a recent cybercrime. We're going to explain what data was breached, who was impacted, how the hackers were able to perform the cyber attack, and ways in which the breach could have been avoided with the hopes that cybersecurity professionals and anyone who uses technology can learn from the attack to prevent cyber crimes in the future. Before we get started, we'd like to introduce ourselves. My name is Jillian, and I graduated with degrees in computer science and math in 2016, and I have been working as an infrastructure engineer specializing in backend development for the past few years since. Hi, I'm Brooke. I have a degree in international business management, as well as in computer science with a concentration in information security. I've been working as a cybersecurity specialist for the past two years. This podcast series is going to be focused around cybercrime. As defined by the Certified Information Systems Security Professional CISSP book, cyber law deals with three categories related to cybercrimes. A computer-assisted crime is where a computer was used as a tool to help carry out a crime. For example, attacking a financial system to steal funds and or sensitive information. A computer targeted crime concerns incidents where a computer was the victim of an attack that was intended to harm the computer or its owner specifically. An example would be a denial of service attack or installing malware with the intent to cause destruction. It is easy to get the two of these confused, but a good way to think about it is that a computer-targeted crime could not take place without a computer, and a computer-assisted crime could. The last type of crime is where a computer is not necessarily the attacker or the attackee, but just happened to be involved when a crime was carried out. This is referred to as computer is incidental. An example would be dropping a desktop computer out of a window and it falling on a vehicle below. The computer in this case just happens to be incidental to the vehicle damage. In today's episode, we are going to focus on the Uber data breach that occurred in 2016 and affected roughly 57 million riders and drivers who use Uber. According to case documents, on or about November 14, 2016, Uber learned of a breach of consumer personal information stored in their Amazon S3 data store. Intruders gained access to the Amazon S3 data store using an access key that an Uber engineer had stored in GitHub, which is a code sharing service used by software developers. The key was in plain text in code that was posted to a private GitHub repository. However, Uber granted its engineers access to Uber's GitHub repositories through their individual GitHub accounts, which they generally access through personal email addresses. Because Uber did not manage these personal accounts, they could not have a policy prohibiting engineers from reusing credentials and did not require the developers to enable multi-factor authentication when accessing Uber's GitHub repositories. This enabled the intruders to access Uber's code using passwords that had been previously exposed in other large data breaches, so they were able to log in and discover this access key in plain text. The hackers downloaded 16 files from Uber's Amazon S3 data store between October 13, 2016 and November 15, 2016. These files contained unencrypted consumer personal information relating to U.S. riders and drivers, including approximately 25.6 million names and email addresses, 22.1 million names and mobile phone numbers, and 607,000 names and driver's license numbers. Nearly all of the exposed personal information was collected by Uber and stored in unencrypted database back 
backup files. According to Uber, location history, credit card numbers, bank account numbers, social security numbers, and dates of birth do not appear to have been stolen. The reason this went into investigation is because Uber didn't disclose the breach when it was discovered. Uber paid the hackers $100,000 through a bug bounty to keep the breach quiet rather than report the incident to their users. Oh, wow. That's a lot to take in. It really is. So let's take a second to kind of break all this down so we can see how it could relate to us. Sure. To get a better understanding of Uber's user base, as of December 2018, Uber had roughly 75 million riders and roughly 3 million drivers. Okay, so if there were 57 million users impacted in this 2016 data breach, that's a pretty large percentage of that customer base. So if I was an Uber user at the time, there's probably a good chance that I was impacted. Exactly. And just to get an even better understanding of the demographics, it looks like Uber is available in 65 countries and over 600 cities worldwide. In the U.S., the user base is pretty evenly split between males and females. In terms of the age, most of Uber's users are younger. It looks like about 65% of the user base is under the age of 35. And most of the users, not surprisingly, are urban and suburban dwellers. Only about 6% are rural, which isn't really surprising because a lot of Uber uh, availability is only in larger U.S. cities. So we know that the hackers were able to steal names, driver's license numbers, email addresses, and phone numbers. But what does that really mean to me? Like, what can they really do with that? Yeah, so at first glance, a hacker having your name and email address may seem pretty harmless, but in fact, um, this is a really common way that hackers will attempt to steal your personal or financial information through what is called phishing. And according to a 2018 report, 76% of companies reported experiencing a phishing attack in the previous year. Oh, wow. And for some of the listeners out there that may not be super tech savvy, could you explain what phishing is? Yeah. So phishing is a form of what is called social engineering, where a sender appearing to pose as a trusted institution will send you a personalized email. And oftentimes, they'll try to impersonate a bank or a social media account, and they'll often include your name or other details about you in the email so that you trust them. And typically, these emails will include links in them out to external websites where they'll either prompt you to download malware or um, ask you to enter maybe your credentials to log into what you think the website is. So you enter them, and now they have your credentials for the website or your bank if it happens to be that. I think the really important thing to remember is that real companies are never going to ask you for this type of information via email. And this is such a dangerous potential threat to companies that many large organizations put a ton of effort into education and awareness of their employees around phishing. I wanted to add that best practice would be if you receive something that seems kind of suspicious via email, you're not really sure whether or not it's from a legitimate source, you always have the option of either directly calling the institution with a number that you know to be the the phone number. Don't click, you know, don't use a phone number in the email, of course. Um, Or you could actually go to your browser and type the URL in yourself for the website that you know to be the website. Don't click a link or open any attachment from the email sender. Yeah. And just share your concern with them that I received this, but I'm not sure if it's accurate. Can you as the authority, like give me some insight into this? Exactly. 
And then with phone number, I'm sure everyone has received spam phone calls. So by having your name and phone number, they can easily just keep calling you. There's even the potential that hackers could sell your phone number to telemarketers um, to get it out there that way. And not saying they necessarily did this, but it's just a possibility of things they could have done with this information. really scary. It really is. And especially for the drivers because um, they have to provide their driver's license numbers. The driver's license number is very specific in identifying an individual, right? Because it's your identifier on your driver's license or ID card and something that you don't want to get into the wrong hands. My opinion, the most concerning part of all of this is that rather than disclose the breach when they found out that they had been breached, the Uber executives decided to go ahead and pay the hackers through a bug bounty and try to keep it quiet. And this really calls into question their ethics. And it makes me wonder if I want to keep using Uber as a the consumer or maybe pivot to some competitor like Lyft. It really does. It makes you wonder if you're in good hands, if they're not even going to protect your data or share with you that it's not been secured. Yeah, exactly. Could I trust that they're actually being good stewards of my information? So if Uber didn't disclose the breach, how did the hackers get caught? Well, the two hackers who stole millions of users' data from Uber attempted a similar cyber attack after compromising the data of nearly 90,000 Lynda.com users. Lynda is an online learning portal which was acquired in June 2016 by LinkedIn, which is a subsidiary of Microsoft and is now known as LinkedIn Learning. The hackers contacted the security team at LinkedIn in December 2016 and notified them of the compromise and requested a huge reward in exchange for deletion of the data. It is not clear whether the hackers successfully obtained payment from LinkedIn using the same bug bounty that they did with Uber, but since the hack has come to light, documents do include that victim corporations communicated with the hackers about payment in exchange for deletion of the data. The hackers have been indicted and face felony hacking and extortion charges for the stolen Lynda.com data. So basically, they got caught by attempting to do the same hack on other large companies. So the hackers got caught and were indicted, but what were the consequences to Uber for covering up the breach? The case was settled in 2018 for $148 million, and Uber's chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, was fired for his role in the cover-up. Uber agreed to 20 years of privacy audits and was required to implement a new privacy program as part of the settlement after the Federal Trade Commission said the ride-sharing service had failed consumers. In addition, drivers got free credit monitoring and identity theft protection. So today we have a special guest on the podcast. He has been working as a penetration tester for over five years and currently leads the penetration testing team at a well-known Fortune 100 company. Please welcome Evan. Thank you for having me on your show today. Absolutely. So let's just jump right in. We've gone over a brief overview of what happened during the Uber breach of 2016, but we wanted to get into some more technical details and we are hoping as a subject matter expert, you can help us out. Absolutely. So you're an ethical hacker. Can you break down for us how hackers identify their targets? Sure. So, you know, when we think of hackers, a lot of people think of these highly sophisticated folks using all kinds of high-tech approaches to steal your data. Well, that is true in a lot of cases. Honestly, most hackers are opportunistic. So it's quite possible that the hackers didn't actually have a specific target in mind when they began their credential harvesting effort. You know, often they're just combing the internet looking for a breadcrumb that may lead them to something else worthwhile. You know, already available online for no costs are large data stores containing credentials obtained from previous breaches. 
If you combine that with other data found on social media, Google, or other publicly available locations, you could really turn somebody's life upside down. The unfortunate thing here is that anything you put online for good can also be used for bad. That's a really good point, Evan. So now the hackers have these usernames and passwords. How could they have gone about trying to log into GitHub using so many different pairs of credentials? And how could they have known that they were even credentials for GitHub accounts? Yeah, so you know, once a hacker obtains credentials, the next phase is really trying to figure out what can I actually do with these things. So there's a lot of open source scripts that'll just take a bunch of usernames and credentials and just try to authenticate to all kinds of popular sites, Facebook, GitHub, Twitter, bank sites, everything else, just to see where it actually works. And then anything that's successful will be presented back to them in a nice report for them to use for further exploitation. Uh, in Uber's case, you know, the hackers identified valid creds that to a popular online code repository, GitHub. Uh, from the reports that I've read, Uber actually allowed their developers to access their private GitHub repository using their own personal GitHub accounts. And actually, that's not a great idea, as Uber has no control over the accounts and the security surrounding them. Now, if the, if the targeted users had actually leveraged GitHub's multi-factor authentication, it would have at least made it more difficult for the attackers to get into the GitHub repos because the credentials alone wouldn't have been enough to get in. So that's really why reusing the same username and password across sites is a bad idea because while it's possible the attackers were targeting Uber specifically, my guess is that they just got lucky when they found out that a different breaches data also worked here. That's a good point. And so... After they're in the GitHub account, what would be the next thing that they or that you would look for to access sensitive data? Well, the nice thing about GitHub is that its real purpose is to store data and to make it very easy to upload data and also very easily to download data since that's kind of its main thing. So, you know, once you find the repository, it's really just as simple as saying git clone, give the repo's address and it'll pull everything right down to your desktop and allow you to scour through all that data offline. So once all the data is offline, I personally would just start searching for keywords like password, pass, dash P, you know, anything else that may be indicative within the code. And even just spot checking the files, just looking for something interesting. You know, it's amazing how much knowledge you can gain just from looking through configuration files and code. You know, in Uber's case, once the hackers inspected the data on GitHub, they found files with hard-coded credentials, AWS keys, etc. So the hackers were able to get into these GitHub accounts and find an access key in a GitHub repo. What can be done with an access key and how do you determine what it can be used for? So depending on how the company's, you know, identity and access management program manages its AWS keys, you know, the privileges can really range just like a normal account anywhere from very limited to, you know, a literal key to the kingdom. Uh, once the attacker obtains the keys and authenticates, you know, there's commands that they can issue, you know, that'll tell them, you know, these are the privileges associated with that account. And in Uber's case, these keys had a lot of power and allowed access to sensitive data stores. So once they're in the S3 data store, what would be the next thing to look for and how would you find it? So, I mean, once you're in, you're in. So the first thing I do is pull down everything and just start querying the data offline, just like with GitHub. You know, the ideal scenario here is finding person identifiable information or payment card data. So I'd run a variety of once again, keywords or even, you know, regular expressions for you know, payment card numbers or social security numbers, et cetera, just to see what exists. You know, in Uber's case, 
personally identifiable data of customers and drivers were exposed. Things like names, email addresses, telephone numbers, driver's license numbers, etc. So now you have all of this sensitive information from the AWS S3 bucket. What do you do with it? Uh, as a good guy or a bad guy? <laughs> good guy first. Uh, so as a good guy, you know, I would disclose my findings immediately to the company so they can take quick action to, to fix it. Now, as a bad guy, you know, probably leave behind some sort of backdoor to allow me to come back in at a later time, maybe modify code. So maybe to siphon off new data as they capture it and, you know, start looking for potential buyers for the data. Wow, this has been really eye-opening. So thank you for breaking it down for us so we can understand what really goes into these attacks from a technical perspective. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This data breach that occurred in 2016 is unfortunately not the first information security incident Uber has had. To give a little background on the history of data security and privacy at Uber, we're going to dive into a couple incidents that occurred before the 2016 data breach that we just discussed. In November 2014, there were a number of news reports regarding allegations of Uber improperly accessing and using consumer personal information, including geolocation data. One widely circulated article described a tool called Godview, which was an internal aerial tracking tool that displayed personal information about Uber riders. Uber has stated that they have a strict policy that prohibits all employees from accessing riders and drivers' data, with an exception for a very limited set of legitimate business purposes. This policy was communicated to all employees and contractors and also said that access to rider and driver accounts was being monitored and audited by data security specialists continually. Violations of the policy were to result in disciplinary action, possibly termination and legal action. Despite these claims, Uber was not always closely monitoring and auditing employee access to rider and driver accounts since November 2014. In December 2014, Uber developed an automated system that monitored employee access to customers' personal information, but the system was not designed or staffed to handle access review in an ongoing fashion. So around August 2015, Uber stopped using this automated system and began to create a new one. From August 2015 to May 2016, so about nine months, Uber did not promptly follow up on automated alerts that indicated the possibility of misuse of customer personal information and only monitored access to account information of high-profile users like Uber executives for the first six months of this time period. They were also only monitoring internal access to personal information if an employee reported that a coworker had engaged in inappropriate access. So during this time period, Uber was susceptible to employee unauthorized access to consumers' personal data, which is pretty concerning to me as an Uber user myself. I completely agree. It seems like they have a habitual misuse of customer data and questionable morality because going back to the 2016 breach, the Uber executives had paid the hackers to keep the breach quiet rather than disclose it to consumers. And now we find out that they've also been using this Godview tool to track users' geolocations with no real business need. This Godview tool was first reported by a BuzzFeed journalist who was riding in an Uber on her way to to meet with an Uber executive. And when she arrived, she said that she was told the executive had been tracking her. Wow, that is so creepy. It really is. And I think what's also concerning about this is that they had communicated that their policy was that employees um, at any level in the company were not to be accessing their riders and drivers' personal information, geolocation without a real business need. And to me, that's not a real business need. And furthermore, they had these monitoring tools in place to track when their employees were having this unneeded or unauthorized access to their consumers' data. But 
when they detected an incident, they weren't staffed to take action on that. And there was even a period of time they were not even auditing that data access. And you know, you you may be out there thinking, so what? I, I don't know any Uber executives. But the fact is, you don't really know who all is an Uber employee that could have been accessing your information if you were an Uber user at that time. And it's really disturbing to me to think that someone could be cyber stalking me if I had had my location services enabled and was an Uber user at the time. If you can believe it, this isn't the first time that Uber's faced scrutiny over its privacy practices. More than 100,000 names and driver's license numbers were stolen in a 2014 data breach of Uber's database operated by Amazon Web Services. According to case documents, on or about May 12, 2014, an intruder was able to access consumers' personal information in plain text in Uber's Amazon S3 data store, using an access key that one of Uber's engineers had publicly posted to GitHub. The publicly posted key granted full administrative privileges to all data and documents stored within Uber's Amazon S3 data store. The intruder accessed one file that contained sensitive personal information belonging to Uber drivers, including over 100,000 unencrypted names and driver's license numbers, 215 unencrypted names and bank account and domestic routing numbers, and 84 unencrypted names and social security numbers. The file also contained other Uber driver information, including physical addresses, email addresses, mobile phone numbers, device IDs, and location information from trips the Uber drivers had provided. Is any of this sounding familiar? It is nearly identical to the 2016 breach, further demonstrating that Uber has had many botched attempts at fixing previously identified vulnerabilities. The Federal Trade Commission said the company could have made low-cost attempts, like using multi-factor authentication to prevent the breach. So I think it's pretty clear that this has been a repetitive issue for Uber, and we can really say that a lot of this stuff in the 2016 data breach could have been avoided by fixing some of these same underlying issues that caused the breach in 2014. And since the purpose of our podcast is really to kind of present this data breach in a way that we can learn from it for both like IT professionals and also just anyone who uses technology. We're going to start diving into some of the ways that both Uber and any users of applications could prevent this sort of thing in the future. So the first thing that we want to talk about from the Uber perspective is the fact that they were using personal email addresses to access their GitHub repositories for their Uber work code. Evan kind of mentioned this earlier in his technical interview saying that this is not a good idea in general. And the reasoning behind this is that uh, having a personal account used for your work code means that the company you're working for has no control over that account. This means that Uber wasn't able to require their employees to reset their passwords that are used to access the Uber GitHub repositories uh, every so often, like every three months or so. Also, it didn't allow them to enforce MFA or multi-factor authentication. If you don't know what MFA is, it's basically where you need to have multiple 
um, factors to log into a website. So you've all probably seen this before. Um, say you're trying to sign into your Gmail account, for example, and you enter your username and password, but you're not able to completely log in. Oftentimes, they'll just send you a code through a text message to your phone. Um, and then once you enter that, you're able to successfully log in. So the idea is that there's two factors for authentication, one being your password, which is something you know, and then the second being something you have, which is this code that was sent to your phone. Yeah, with multi-factor authentication, I think the standard saying is uh, something you have, something you know, or something you are. Mm -hmm. Something you have could be like... um, like an access card if you scan it or some kind of like a token that you put in something that you know would be like a pass a password or some other identifying piece of information and something you are could be like an iris scan or a fingerprint scan or something like that. Yeah, those are all really good examples. So multi-factor would mean having more than one of those things in any combination. Right. And if you think about it, going back to the Uber attack, the hackers only had a username and password because those were the only things that were breached in a previous attack where they got these credentials, right? Right. So if MFA had been enforced, they would have entered the username and password and then a code would have been sent to the actual account owner's phone and they know they're not trying to log in at that point. So they wouldn't have been able to successfully get in. Right, exactly. Could have been prevented. Another thing that could have um, been done to prevent this is not storing an access key in plain text. And it's um, best practice to not do that, to not uh, hard code it into any code and to not have it in plain text encrypted in some way, as well as least privilege principle, which basically just means that the identification that's used should only have the amount of privilege that is needed to perform that job. So a developer would not necessarily need admin privileges. They would just need whatever privileges they need to be able to write code and store it in GitHub. Uh, Whereas an administrator's account may have higher privileges, like being able to see all the usernames and passwords or sensitive data. So in any kind of... um, a company best practice would always be to only give access that is required to do the job function at hand, not to just give out admin privileges to everyone in the account. And in this case, the um, attackers were able to gain access to accounts that had higher levels of privilege. Yeah, that's a really good point, Brooke. And I think one thing to think about from the developer's developer perspective is really think about what your code is doing and what level of access it needs. So really think about what your code actually has to do and what access keys you're granting to it. Another thing to consider is um, the encryption of data. So we always say that data must be encrypted at rest and also in transit. So it's very clear from this Uber data breach that the data stored in the S3 data store was not encrypted um, because the reports state that it was um, stored in these buckets in an unencrypted fashion, which made it really easy for the hackers just to go in and get this data in plain text. Whereas if it had been encrypted, at least uh, the hackers would have had to find a way to unencrypt the data. Exactly. And Uber did not have any kind of a formal information security 
uh, training program in place at the time. And so it's something else to consider to always have a formal documented plan in place so your employees are educated on secure coding practices. Yeah, I know that's something that we're always learning at the job that I work at today. We always have these trainings we have to go through. So that's a good, important point and something that Uber could have definitely implemented in their company. And just switching gears a little bit from what the company could have done, as a user of any application or technology out there, there's also some things as an individual that can be done to better protect the information that you have to protect against uh, identity theft or stolen credit card information and stuff like that. And so I just wanted to point out in this case, uh, something that Jillian and I both ended up doing <laughs> as we were doing this podcast is um, going in on your settings on your mobile device and checking to see what all permissions that you grant to particular applications that you have downloaded. Uh, in this case, location services. So um, with Uber, you can either select to allow them to be able to access your location at any point in time or only when you're using the application. Or not at all. Yeah. Or not at all. But if you do not at all, I don't think they could find where you are. So you have to be able to, in this, in Uber's case specifically, they would need to be able to track your location uh, while you're using the app. But the rest of the time, they don't really have any business need to know where you are. And so it's, it's a good idea to go through and check and see what permissions you've granted applications that you've downloaded to get an idea for what you're allowing them to access and whatnot. Some some applications may ask if they can access your camera or your speakers or your personal photo albums. And when you start to think about that, or, or in this case, location services, you ask yourself, do they really need this? I mean, is it really required for this application for them to, say, be able to use my camera and turn it on or off at will? A lot of times the answer is no. And so we actually went and looked and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were doing some research for this podcast, actually. And so I happened to pull up my Uber settings on my phone. And I saw that I had my location services for Uber enabled for all of the time. And so I thought immediately went to this Godview tool that we discussed earlier. And I thought, I was like, oh, no, I'm a little vulnerable to that. But cyber stalking. Yeah. And so it's always important uh, just to go through and check that and make sure that you're granting the permissions that you feel are appropriate to these applications. Yeah. The whole idea is really just limiting the amount of personal information that you're exposing to these applications. So another really important thing to think about when you're signing up for an account on a website or an app is to use a strong complex password. Right. And just to clarify, a complex password is anything that is at least eight characters. Best practices, you'd probably want to have 12 or more characters, but at least eight. And you want to include at least one uppercase, one lowercase, a number, and a special character within that password. And the reason for this is just because the amount of time that it would take an attacker to brute force and be able to crack your password is dependent upon the complexity of the password. So having a really strong complex password is going to make it nearly impossible for the hacker or attacker to be able to 
be able to crack your password in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, that's true. And for every additional character you add to your password length, it actually makes it exponentially more time for the hackers to be able to crack your password. Exactly. Um, so other good password best practices are to change your passwords frequently. So we know it's so easy just to choose your password and leave it there for a year, two years, forever. Um, it really is best to change it every so often. So maybe every month, change all your passwords on your applications and websites. Another good practice is to use a different password password for each account that you have. Um, Because as you could see in the data breach for Uber, these passwords were used for both their GitHub account and for other accounts where they were previously exposed. So if they hadn't been using the same credentials for these other websites and then also GitHub, the hackers wouldn't have had their password to log into the GitHub account. So now that we've discussed these different prevention techniques, and we really hope that you've learned something in terms of cybersecurity and prevention of these types of data breaches that you can take back to your company as an IT or cybersecurity professional, or even just for more awareness if you're a person that uses technology in your everyday life. So I think to wrap up, it would be good if we each share kind of our number one takeaway. Um, So for me, coming from the technical perspective, I definitely gained a lot of insight into ways that as a developer, I can make my applications more secure and always be keeping these kind of security loopholes or best practices in mind when I'm coding and um, designing an application. And for me personally, I think my number one takeaway that I've learned is just to be more aware of what applications I'm downloading as well as what permissions I'm giving to the application while um, it's downloaded on my device. Just maybe do a little bit more background research to see if it's a reputable company, if they've had any previous breaches or have been in the news for any kind of um, controversial subjects. And, you know, like Jillian and I had mentioned earlier, just going through all of the apps that I already have and seeing what permissions I've actually enabled for them to be using and deciding for me personally if I think it's appropriate. Um, Just the awareness in it, I think, is a good takeaway. Yeah, and so we really encourage you to think of your personal takeaway as well of what you've learned from this podcast that you can apply every day. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode on the Uber Data Breach. We really hope that you learned something from our discussion and we hope to see you next time on Next Exec.